Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Josh Lindsay, from the Movie Proposal Podcast. And with me is our first-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Josh. I'm so thankful that you're here and that you're doing this, even though you're volunteering and you really should be leaving right now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, I have somewhere to go. I know, I know. (laughs) Not leaving in general. It's all good. It's all good. Um, And who is also staying in the room Thank you, Jason. to help us is Jason Rugg. Hey there. Hey We're there. so thankful for you too. <laughs> Could not do it without him. No, I love him being here. So uh, we've t- the last two podcasts, we talked a lot about connections and experiences at screenings. Um, you're obviously raising money, but just the stories and that you can tell and the people that you're meeting and um, the journey you're going on has been the experience. Correct. Right? You know, so, um, and a valuable one at that. Yes. Today we're going to talk about something different. We're going to talk about... You want to know what I've been doing since I got back, don't you? Uh, yes, Christian, I do. <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> I thought Lay you might, Josh. Me. So I got back, and as soon as I got back, like the two days after, it was my anniversary. Get out of here. It was, and we had been married 26 years, and I decided not to work. Oh, Wait, you is... can do that? I did. I did not work. I mean, maybe a little, but not really. And we... Drove to Madison, Indiana, which is a beautiful place. If you've never been to Madison, Indiana, I highly recommend That's it. That's where I people go for their 26th anniversary. <laughs> they, they did <laughs> this year. <laughs> it was right by the Ohio River, so you look over the river. So romantic. I stood, stayed in the honeymoon suite of the Hillside Inn. It <laughs> Only was, 26 years too late. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yes. Uh, it was beautiful. It was a big room and a heart you know, no, it jacu- didn't. yes, it had a hard jacuzzi tub, king size bed, a fireplace. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> was the fireplace to have like a giant cord you pulled no, down? It was, and- a, it, was, it was a switch. It was just a switch. It was so easy. I don't. Okay, and I, I'm not going to ask more questions about the room. We, we should move on. Yeah, we should move on. So we were in Madison, Indiana. I had a wonderful break. We had Thanksgiving with my in-laws and my two sons, Jacob and Josh, and then we got home on Sunday afternoon, and I was like dying to get back to my computer. Monday morning, uh, I hit the road, uh, like, you know, figuratively, uh, on what I had to do. And it started with, I really... I'm trying to go fast. Yes, I really, I wanted to talk with uh, Bill Ebel and Chuck Check. Chuck Check? Chuck Check. You, you have some of the most interesting names people. <laughs> Chuck Check is such an answer to prayer. He's what was a, the other one? Pugsley? Puck-a-Pugsley? Uh, Puck-Puggy. 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 Mm-hmm. D-A-R. Feeling California. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling California <laughs> with Puck-Pugsley and Chuck Chuck. <laughs> Chuck Check. Chuck Check, Chuck Check is Chuck. our uh, volunteer from the Holy Post podcast who actually works at a PBS station in Iowa. And he's always super busy, especially this time of year, with all of these election things going on and Iowa being in the focus, but mm. he makes time to help us in wow. incredible ways. I've been so thankful for him because he has experience in documentary filmmaking. He actually even does like a little show about it, and he helps documentarians kind of get their show together. What better person? That's a funny line. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> what? They help get their show together. I yeah. say something else. <laughs> <laughs> they get their show together. <laughs> So he 
right now is heading up the effort for our rights and clearances effort. This sounds exciting. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And as a creative, this is why you need other people. Correct. Because they do that stuff. Correct. Rights and clearances. <laughs> this is a nightmare, and it's particularly a nightmare because I'm a bad – I've never done this before. And I You're a first-time filmmaker. I am a first-time <laughs> filmmaker. Lesson to me and to you who are listening, please make sure that when you are doing your film, every single thing that you put in that timeline in Premiere or Final Cut or whatever you're editing in, make sure it's all labeled with whatever it is and where it came from. And you could also make a note about if you have the rights for it or not. So this we did not do. And sometimes we, you know, we just found things. Now we don't know where we found them. (laughs) And we have to backtrack and figure out where these archival photos came from. Now, thankfully... Who, who, who's monitoring this, though, really? <laughs> like, is someone going to go, you did not put... Yes. This came from the library. Here's of- what happens. You have to get errors and emission insurance. When you are done with your film and you're going to distribute it, errors and emission insurance is an important thing because once you have the ability to make money from something, people can look at that thing and say... Hey, they didn't have the right to use that. They didn't pay me money. Hey, I'm in that. I didn't get any money. It's all about the money. So you have to demonstrate that you have the rights to use that thing. So, for example, the music in our film is 99.9% originally created. However, it was originally created by Jeff Kurtenacker. It's his creative intellectual property. Jeff owns that. So, But he told me, I'm volunteering, I'm going to give you this music. Uh, he will retain the rights to use it however he wants. That was our agreement. We made the verbal agreement. Now we have to solidify that, have a piece of paper, have a music cue sheet to demonstrate that this music, we actually have the rights to use this music. The One of the big reasons I'm fundraising is we have archival footage in our film that is in a post house in France, INA.FR. It was an original interview that was done by a newscaster in France, and that newscaster or that news organization, it was in 1964. I don't know that it exists anymore. So its library was bought by this house, and now this house owns this film. Their job is to make money on stuff like that, and so they're not just going to give it to me to use. So in order to use that, I have to buy rights to use it. So there are many levels of rights depending on where it's going to show. Theatrical rights are different from film festival rights, and so – the film festival rights are $3,000. The everything but theatrical is going to cost me like $15,000. So it, so I have to pay that money, show that I've paid it, so that I can then license the film and make money from that film, even though I will not Could, be making I mean, any money anytime obviously soon. Obviously, you're fundraising, but if there was someone that was interested in the film and they said, hey, we want to you know, buy this film or – distribute this film. I mean, part of the deal can be like, okay, well, we owe all this money for the archival type stuff. So that's not really how it works. I mean, it could. If I found, let's say the, let's say I'm so close. So I'm $85,000 away from being able to finish the film on my own. Right now, if I have that money myself or someone donates the money, then I make the film and guess who owns the film? You. I do, along with my partners, which is Reverse Negative and um, 
well, I mean, it's just between us and reverse negative. We are carrying some production debt. So, but we have this property that we then decide what to do with this property. And so I want to retain that control. It's in my interest because then it's reverse negative and I splitting whatever profits would eventually come from it. If the History Channel said, hey, we want this movie and we'll give you, you know, what do we need in order to have this? Okay, we'll give you the $85,000, but we want X, Y, Z. We want to say um, this is what, you know, you need to change. We want Um. to have... A, a, you know, s- some sort of cut of this or whatever. So that's not my preference. And I'm sure I could make some deal or I could even have an investor say, hey, we want, uh, we'll give you that $85, but we want XYZ. I never, I didn't choose to go the investor route in the first place because A, I didn't want them to have control over it. And B, I'm not a proven director. I can't prove to you that you're going to get a return on your investment by anything I've done in the past. So that's why we went the donation route. And that's why I continue to do things the hard way and raise the money like this in you know a charitable way so that uh, really it's a grassroots that everybody has striven together to make. So I am going to have to pay money for rights for that archival footage. Fortunately, we have releases for locations we have releases for people we've shot most of the film or taken most of the pictures so the biggest thing that's going to cost us is this archival footage and maybe a little bit of music but that's it i just have to prove all that so dear chuck check has sat at his desk he's reviewed the whole film he's taken screenshots from every like every time there is a cut or a thing that changes put it in a graph talked about named it talked about where it was, tried to find all the archival stuff in the National Archives and put the file number so we see it's, you know, in the public domain. Oh, my gosh. It's so <laughs> incredible. And and now Bill and I are going to have to work at all the other shots and, and finding out where we found them, included them in our movie. And we have to have this document called a rights Bible that we, when we go to you know, license the film, a distributor will say, like this, you know, the distributor will say, I need to see your rights Bible. Because the distributor is always going to have to demonstrate to whoever they license it to, whether it's any streaming service or any cable channel, here is our rights Bible that shows you that you have the rights to use it. So this is going to be the next big thing that I have to tackle. And sometimes, like Chuck told me at PBS, they budget twenty to forty thousand dollars just for this process. Hmm. So it's a you know it's a big process. Not only people keep asking me, "You look stunned. The film looks stunned," and I'm just saying, "They're going, oh my gosh, <laughs> you have no idea. You have no the idea. Paperwork. Yeah, because I mean, there's a huge amounts of paperwork. There is still." We still have to fix several sound problems in our film. It still has to be color corrected. It still has to, like, I have to re-record some narration, all the narration, actually, because it's recorded at different levels over periods of time. So I have to go back into the studio, record all the narration. We then have to dub it. We then have to do some, you know, more subtitling. We have to pay for the rights. I mean, (laughs) like, if I'm to label it out, it's none of the stuff that's left is sexy. Most people wouldn't even know it. We have, to, we have to do graphics. We have to do title cards. We have to do subtitles. That's time. And every, you know, the, I'm usually paying for things like the archival footage or Bill Ebel, who's worth 
every single penny and more. But he's got a family of five, kids are in college, he's got to work. So Mm -hmm. if I'm going to use this amazing editor, I have to pay his fees. So that's what all this money goes to do. All right. So way to go, Chuck Check. Way to go, Chuck Check. You are the hero of this podcast. Man. Can I say one other thing? Um, Maybe. Do I have time? Okay. Okay, great. So I've been watching this week. I just got Disney Plus. Thanks to my son, Hunter, who uh, bought, I guess, a subscription and has added us all. And I just was kind of scrolling through. Because so of, wait a second, wait a second. What? You're, you're just logging in and are him. Is that what you're doing? No. Well, he created a profile for everybody. <laughs> Oh, I see. I see. I got you. So anyway, I logged under my own profile, which is Elsa. Thank you very much. And I was scrolling. <laughs> I'm Jack from uh, Are you? Before Christmas. Are you? Yeah. He is uh, Boba Fett. Hunter is Boba Fett. I'm, I'm Elsa. I'm the Mandalorian. You're the Mandalorian. <laughs> yeah. And um, Jeremy is Darth Vader. And Josh is baby Groot. And it's really cute. I like what he did. My, my dad's is the old guy from Up. Because <laughs> <laughs> my sister bought the account. That's so great. That's so great. So I was scrolling through and I was looking for documentaries, which of course are my favorite. And I ran upon Imagineering the Story. Yeah, the Imagineering Story. The Imagineering Story. And I would just watched it mesmerized. Hmm. So, Jason, why don't you tell us what it is? So, the Imagineering story is really uh, a – I think it's a six-part documentary series. There's only four episodes out as of this recording. Uh, they're talking about uh, the Imagineering story, how they made – What's an Imagineer? So, an Imagineer is what Walt – the coin uh, – a term that Walt Disney coined about engineers and that they needed to have imagination. So, you have Imagineers. They have imagination and engineering. And so it's going through the entire history from the start of Walt Disney to up through the modern era. And so it's talking a lot about the parks. And um, I actually, it's really funny. I missed the first episode. I haven't seen the first episode. Oh, wow. I've seen the other three. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Go back and watch the first one. one. Um, So, yeah, it's it's a really fascinating documentary. What have you enjoyed about it? Um, So there's one part in episode three where they're talking about making Epcot. And uh, so this is after Walt has died, Roy has died. So they're kind of trying to scramble and put this park together. And they approach several different people and they're like, uh, hey, you've only painted sets before. Uh, You're going to design a shop. And uh, they have this this one woman they interviewed. She goes, I've never done anything like that before. And they go, okay, do it. And she did it. And her shop is in Epcot to this day that she designed. And it's just like they took people who had no idea what they were doing and just thrust them into, hey, you're going to do this. Figure it out. And that sounds familiar. Yes, yeah. actually. That uh, that really resonated with me. <laughs> and that leads into my point of as I'm watching this, I, episode one was where I just got sucked in right away because I related to it so much. Uh, it was they began doing these, you know, he began doing these little um, films, tiny little films. Right. And then it grew. You know, he had this big imagination and this big vision. And thank the Lord he had Roy Disney, who would always figure out the finances, make it work, try to rein him in. But it reminded me so much about what I'm doing. 
Because when he decided, particularly about going into making the parks, which you wouldn't think there would be a connection, but I felt like there was, when he started with this small little thing that he did know, making little, you know, his Mickey Mouse figures and things like that, and then he decided he wanted to make this big park. But nothing to that size or scale had ever been done before, and there was no roadmap. So he took guys that were animators and people that had done other stuff before. They were all creatives, art directors, and um, I don't know. I can't even remember all of their titles. But he took all those people who had no experience in building actual physical things, and there were no computers, and there were no emails. When you think about (laughs) what they were doing in 1960, I think it was – was it 50s? It was 50s? It may have been 50. I, no, 66. It opened. No, that's when he died. Dang it. I <laughs> think, so you're talking Disneyland. Disneyland, right? yes. Right, because yes. Disney World was in the 60s. Yes, was. it was. He died two months bef- or two days before I was born, something like that. So I think it was in the 50s when they were doing Disneyland. Disneyland opened in 1955. 55, right. So this had, there was no roadmap. There were no machines. And so they had to figure it out. And they took people who had no experience doing anything else but had a willing spirit, had creative imagination, and who just were so excited to follow this visionary uh, as he was imagining you know, wonderful things that brought happiness and life. And that's how I feel this project has kind of gone. None of us really knew what we were doing. Everybody has loved the story, had a, a willing spirit, wants to learn, and is just following the vision as it's carrying us forward. And so this was very inspiring to me. There were lots of things that went wrong. There were lots of things that Walt Disney did where he made mistakes. And you can even look back and see those. Those were painful or they were hard. But Disney's still here today. It's still blessing people today. It's still growing today. And that vision began with Walt and Roy. And that was super encouraging that even in the midst of all of the mistakes that I made or things that I haven't done right, those can be redeemed. Good can still come out of this. People can still be blessed. And I just need to keep going. Well, I think it might be awkward, but I'm looking forward to the Normandy theme park that you're going to design. <laughs> no, I'm not doing that, but Todd Anton oh. does think we need to do a Girl Who Wore Freedom tour. But, oh. you know, he thinks that we should partner with a tour company, do a Girl Who Wore Freedom tour where we go to all the places that we show in our film and tell the story, which is a fabulous idea. Yeah. But then I'm into the tour business. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, very cool. Um, well, I... I I want to plug another podcast real quick. Um, you know, Fresh Air. Terry yes, Gross. NPR. Yeah. Yes. Terry. She interviewed the filmmaker of the Tom Hanks, Mr. Rogers, oh. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Yes. And her name escapes me. It's like, it's, it starts with an M, Mariel or something like that. Uh, she also directed Can You Ever Forgive Me? Right. With um, Melissa McCarthy. Which was great, by the way. I agree. I love um, that film. Mariel Heller. There you go. Yes. And what's really interesting is uh, she's speaking as a female director, you know, and how – because she gets a lot of questions like, you know, what, how do you be successful as a director but also as a female director? And uh, I would encourage you to listen to that recent interview of hers. Okay. Um, one, it's a great film, What a, a Beautiful I, Day in the Neighborhood. Uh, yeah. And uh, so if you're interested in that, it's worth it. But also her, just kind of how she talks about – being a parent and managing being a director and 
just the craziness of that lifestyle and so forth. Mm, that might be good for you me. Should check it out, yeah. Well, speaking of other podcasts, what's coming up on the movie proposal? Well, that is a good question, Christian. <laughs> um, Sky has been gone. I, I sh- we just should have done one without him. You know, yeah. we're, we're behind. But I can sit in. You should. <laughs> well, you're not even here. You're g- gone more than he is. <laughs> um, well, we, there's a lot of great movies out. I don't know. Well, it may be Ford versus Ferrari. Um, I saw Frozen 2. I, I, I saw you like that. Uh, I I, I enjoyed it. Loved the song. The music. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Stuck in your head? Is it that kind of song? Oh, I bought it. I listened to it all the time. I'm, I'm a sucker. I'm embarrassed to say, but it, it, was, it was really good. And my kids loved the movie too, so it was fun. Um, and then A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood was good. So who knows? There's, there's Star Wars is coming up. And yeah, there's a lot going on in the movie lot. world. Yeah. So. That's great. It'll be a surprise. We don't even know what it is yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, don't forget, we have um, a screening coming up this Friday in McMinnville, Tennessee, although by the time this comes out, it's probably over. However, we have another one in Memphis, Tennessee on December 9th at 630, and we will have Flo Plana at both of these screenings. Flo Flo Plana is the Frenchman. Another great name. Another (laughs) great name, yes. A Frenchman whose uh, grandfather was taken by the Germans put in a work camp in Germany to make ammunition that he then sabotaged and was freed by the Allies two years later in 1946 and basically walked and hitchhiked back to France. So we will have Flo Plana at our screening and a couple World War II veterans. So I'm super excited about those. Well, hey, thanks everyone for listening to Documentary First where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Everybody, we still need volunteers and donations. Go to normandystories.com to find out more. Bye. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we really would appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less, so anything helps. Also, if you're able to share the news about the girl who wore freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email, and sign up for our newsletter at Normandy Stories. Please go to normandystories.com slash donate to make a donation today.